I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And we the people listeners, I now want to add the second part of that inspiring congressional motto because it's so important as well. In order to increase understanding and awareness of the U.S. Constitution among the American people. And that is the inspiring educational goal of this podcast. We're speaking today from Yale Law School, where the heads of the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society have accepted our invitation to take this show on the road. And we are so exciting, uh, rather we're so excited, to talk about one of the most important voting rights cases of this Supreme Court term, V.C. versus Abbott. Uh, the question is whether voter ID provisions adopted in Texas violate the 14th and 15th Amendments to the Constitution and also Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And joining us to discuss these crucial questions are two of America's leading practitioners of election law and worthy uh, 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 opponents uh, in some of the most important voting rights cases of our time. Debo Adegbile is partner and co-chair of the anti-discrimination practice at Wilmer Hale. He currently serves as a commissioner on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, appointed by President Obama in 2016. Debo argued Shelby County versus Holder and Northwest Austin Municipal Utility District Number 1, the, that exhaustively named but really important case known as Namundo, uh, both before the Supreme Court. And Will Consovoy is partner at Consovoy McCarthy Park Law Firm. He represented Shelby County in the Shelby County case and filed an amicus brief on behalf of the Project of Fair Representation in VZ versus Abbott in support of the dependents. Debo, Will, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So let's jump right into the facts, which are really important for the constitutional issues. Debo, tell us, how did Texas change its voter ID requirements? What were they before and what are they now? So I, this case has a long and twisted procedural history. Will and I were talking a little bit about it. It's a, a bit of a ping pong situation. But I, I think the core thing to think about is where this case starts. And it starts with an effort of the state of Texas, as you've described, um, in, to impose a set of really what was the nation's most rigorous photo identification voting requirements. And they had initially about six categories of uh, eligible ID identification. And it ranged from things like passports, driver's licenses. It had some notable inclusions and from my perspective, exclusions that were in the category. So one of the notable inclusions is that um, gun carry permits were an acceptable form of ID. Um, on the other hand, student ID, state-issued student ID, was not an acceptable form of ID under, under the law as it was passed initially and, and to this day. And what happened was the act was first passed when Section 5 was in existence before Will and I met in Washington, D.C., and the court decided Shelby County. And it was swiftly objected to under that provision of the Voting Rights Act. And immediately after the Shelby County decision, uh, the state of Texas um, re-puts this this um, law in place and essentially uh, then without the preclearance provision which allowed a pre-implementation blocking of a law, um, the 
ordinary course had to be followed, and the case was met with a swift challenge um, under Section 2 and the constitutional provisions that you've mentioned. And what has happened since then is a winding litigation challenging both um, with intent and effect theories, um, as well as some other constitutional theories, the um, impact of this law and the purpose of the law. Um, so that's sort of a starting place. There, there are many more details, but at bottom, this is the most stringent photo ID law ever passed, and um, Texas is a familiar place for voting cases, and this battle is winding its way um, through the courts uh, in Texas. Thanks so much for that. Uh, Will, what would you add to the facts of the case and focusing on the requirements, what kind of IDs do you need now uh, that you didn't need before? So I agree with much of what that Dibba said. Um, what I would emphasize beyond that, which I think is important to keep in mind, is the law has changed over time, I think at least three times since it was first enacted, and each time it has moved closer to the kind of law that other states have. Whether it gets there or not is, I think, part of what's still being litigated. Um, I think it's fair to say that it is their changes have been responsive to some of the concerns that were raised. For example, there was a serious concern by the district court that people, while the uh, voter ID was free of charge, some of the documents you needed to obtain, like a birth certificate, cost money. And so Texas responded to that concern by adding an indigency exception to that so that those underlying documents are now able to be secured free of charge. Um, it was further amended most recently to allow people without identification to actually vote. So you don't need voter ID anymore in Texas. You do, however, have to sign an affidavit uh, explaining your circumstances and why you don't have it. That has drawn objections, both from the district court and certainly from the plaintiffs. Uh, but the debate there is more narrow than you might think. The plaintiffs want uh, uh, a remedy which was enacted by the district court that says you have to sign a declaration. So one thing I'd like to take a step back and talk about is, as strong as people feel about this case, and you're certainly not gonna find two people who feel more strongly than, than those on this panel, I do want everyone to keep in mind the debate here is slightly narrower than you might think. Before this law, you had to have identification to vote in Texas. You had to have your voter registration card with you. Texas was not a state that let you vote without some sort form of verification of who you were. So what we're talking about is not a rule between verification and non-verification, but between what type of verification you need to have. Um, and no one objects, I think, to the idea that a photo ID law could be legitimate. And here's how we know. After the court struck this one down, they allowed the law to remain in place for the 90, so if you have a photo ID, you have to show it still. They didn't take this law away and 95% of all Texans have photo IDs. So I just wanna make sure like these are important issues, these are huge issues, but I do wanna keep a perspective on what we're actually being lit is being litigated here and, and what is not. Great, okay, so Debo, um, if the question is what kind of photo ID do you have to have consistent with the Constitution and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, what, what, what do the challengers say about why they believe that this law was adopted not to prevent voter fraud, but with the intent and effect of discriminating against minorities? Sure, so um, I think it's fair to say that many states have different requirements for, for voters, and certainly Texas is one of them. But what, what this case revealed, and I think the, there was a very lengthy initial opinion from the uh, trial court 
Um, and what they found is that as a matter of effect and intent, um, there are substantial impediments to a large number of voters. Um, in the original opinion, they, there was, uh, I, I think, a finding that 500,000 or so voters potentially could be affected by this law. And so Texas is a big state. So even if you, even if you have um, certain forms of ID that many people have, there may be many other people that don't. And I think the, the way that we have to think about these laws is are we incrementally adding barriers and impediments that make it harder for people who vote or people who may vote to participate in the process? And, and Will has spoken to some of the iterations of the law and the way in which the law to some degree has become ameliorated over time. But it's also important to note that when the initial interim order, after it went up to the circuit court um, on appeal, when, when the, it went back down to the lower court judge and he put in place a, a temporary order, uh, it was called an interim order, particularly because there was an election coming up and, and he wanted people to have an understanding of what would be appropriate. I think that the time constraint of the impending election was in part what defined what he placed in, in uh, in effect for that order. He didn't think that that was necessarily all that was necessary. And in particular, um, he didn't think that it cleared uh, any of the hurdles with respect to the intent finding. And so on the intent finding, I think it's a pretty straightforward analysis, but um, a complicated matter of constitutional or statutory proof. The straightforward analysis is that Texas did this for a reason. Texas enacted this law to make it more hard, more difficult, for a rising group of minority voters to participate in elections on the theory that it would affect the outcomes in certain elections. I take as a starting point for this um, contention an earlier Supreme Court case, which was the LULAC case. This was a statewide redistricting case after the 2000 round. And what Justice Kennedy said in his opinion for the court in that case is that Texas cut off the opportunity for a rising Latino mi um, minority to exercise its power to vote just as it was coming together in a way that would have substantial impact in the election. And he thought that the, the pattern and the evidence adduced in that case was so strong that his opinion says that it bore the mark of intentional discrimination. And so there is in part a context for this behavior of trying to cut off minority communities as they are coming to coalesce and have voting power. Thanks so much for that. We'll, we'll dig into the constitutional standards in a moment, but uh, broadly, the, one of the lower courts found that the uh, intent was to uh, discriminate and um, cited as an example the fact that the legislators passed it through really fast. They put it to the top of the legislative agenda. What did the defenders say about why the purpose was non-discriminatory and in fact was to prevent voter fraud? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I, and I completely agree that whether there was discriminatory intent here is a really important issue. The test is fairly settled though. You look at, there, you know, first you look for direct evidence of intentional discrimination. There is none here. Even the district court agreed. There's no, we meant to discriminate. Now, the rejoinder, and it's not unfair, is in modern days people are, are smarter and w would rarely have ever do that. But I do think it's an, as an starting point, it's important to at least note that it doesn't exist. So we turn to circumstantial evidence, and you pointed out one area where you look at circumstantial evidence is did you deviate from normal procedures? And they did, they did move this through rather quickly. I think the response was uh, there's a history here that there was, I believe, and 
people can correct me if I'm wrong, three attempts to pass it. Texas has a very unique legislative process. They meet only every other year for a short period of time, and they, they can't come back by, by, by state law. So you have basically once every two years, I think a number of months to get everything done, and they have a ballot balanced budget amendment. So the budget, it takes up a lot of time. Uh, this had been blocked procedurally three terms in a row, and I think the people who wanted this decided to make it a legislative priority. Now, for people who view Texas skeptically, they're going to say that's evidence of intent to do harm. People who look at Texas more charitably will say that just makes common sense. I think one of the challenges in any case where you're trying to prove discrimination by circumstantial evidence is are you threading together discrete pieces of information that build a picture of discrimination? Or are you thinking you have discrimination and pulling together d disparate things and trying to build a case? And I think this court, particularly the Supreme Court, has been deeply concerned with the idea of taking stray actions and trying to build them together. And so if you, we can talk about each of them uh, you know, as we go through our conversation today, but I think it's important to know that when you accuse someone of intentional racial discrimination, uh, and you accuse a state of doing so, I think it's important to say that you have a uh, robust record. And uh, for reasons we'll discuss today, I just don't think the record exists here. Thanks so much for that. All right, let's jump right into the question of discriminatory intent. The lower court said that it was applying the framework articulated in the Village of Arlington Heights case from 1977 to identify a discriminatory purpose. What is that framework, Debo? Uh, it, tell us about how it's rooted in the 15th Amendment or how it applies to Section 2, and uh, th then tell us why you think that this case uh, does show discriminatory intent. Sure. So. Arling un under Arlington Heights and also under the um, Section 2 um, intent standard, um, it, it Will's quite right that these are ways to look at um, and to assess a, um, an enactment of a legislature, a law, where you don't have direct evidence of intentional discrimination, but you look to the circumstances surrounding the measure to determine whether or not you can ferret out a discriminatory intent from what is really um, putting together pieces, uh, Will, Will and I may have different views about when you get when you get to enough um, to. to determine that an enactment actually is discriminatory, but the whole conception of Arlington Heights is that you look at the statutory, you look at the pattern, you look at the sequence, um, you look at uh, various other other um, considerations to see whether or not the particular enactment is discriminatory. Under Section 2, there's a similar set of factors that you look at. You look at the history of discrimination, Arlington Heights has that also. You, you look um, to see is there a pattern of um, racial appeals and elections, things that um, essentially will tell you that there is a climate operating where discrimination may be happening. Now, I think the, the real interesting issue in this case, um, and in so many cases, is that it's hard to get into any particular legislator's mind to um, assign a motivation for a particular law, um, and then you have many actors, so uh, no one legislator can uh, see that a law gets passed. It's a collective action. And so trying to 
understand why a particular person is voting in favor of a measure is, is, is truly difficult. And I think those are the reasons why the understanding the context and the history and the cases and the what the voting behavior of the state has been is relevant. One of the very important distinctions here, and I think this is an area where the law is moving around from my perspective in a tricky direction, um, from Will's perspective, at least in this case, uh, perhaps in a, a good direction, is the question of what are the claims of history? How much work can history do when you are in an intent case? Obviously, you have to focus on the particular measure um, that you're considering and that you're evaluating, but certainly history can provide some clues. And um, I think that's the way the law works. We work based on the decided case. We know something about how we assess uh, measures and motivations based on a context of, of what we've seen in other cases. It happens in an employment context where we might look to uh, whether or not a, somebody was fired for a discriminatory reason based on a pattern or a sequence, and so too it happens in these constitutional cases that involve voting. The court and the tricky part is that the court has um, recently, and when I say the court, I mean the Supreme Court here, has tended to want to shorten the tail of history, right, and to essentially look at things um, in a way that some might argue is acontextually, right, to not look far back because the, the sin of those days is erased and to, and to examine the measure much more tightly and in much more focused fashion. And I think the contention, particularly in voting rights, is that where you have what is essentially an unbroken pattern of decade after decade of state enactments that have been adjudicated to discriminate against minority voters, understanding that pattern is relevant to understanding the enactment at issue. And so those are some of the issues that are kicking around here. Um, one specific issue that was floated in the case is that some of the evidence that the court relied upon initially was the testimony of opponents of the, of the um, enactment. And the court had some skepticism about uh, having motives assigned by opponents of the enactment and whether or not those sort of after enactment characterizations of a legislative process are sufficiently probing. Uh, thanks so much for that. So, Will, Debo just identified two things that the appellate court uh, found. First, that the lower court was wrong to depend on old history. The lower court mentioned Bush v. Vera, the voting rights case from the 90s, I guess, Six, I think. Yeah. Uh, and said that was too long ago. We've got to look at more recent history. And uh, Debo also uh, referred to the question of what kind of legislative history should be relevant. So why don't you just run through the Arlington Heights factors? I have them right here. The historical background. Second, the specific sequence of events. Third, departures from normal procedural sequence. Fourth, substantive departures. And fifth, legislative history. And why do you think that none of those supports a finding of discriminatory intent? Yeah, so... Um, I think it's important to take a step back again because I do think it can get really myopic here if you sort of say, well, they move the legislative calendar around discrimination or this or that. Uh, I think the issue here is that if you isolate each one of them, we can have an argument. But if you pull them all together, what this looks like is a pretty ordinary legislative process. Um, I think you can argue about substantive departures and procedural departures. I just don't think they're there. I think this is a legislature acting in a fairly ordinary way. I'd like to highlight the ones I think that are, I think it's better to highlight the ones that are really driving the analysis here, in my opinion. I think it's one, that 
The history issue is a big issue in this case. I think if you read the district court and the panel opinion, it certainly was driving the analysis, I think, to a large degree. And I agree that where you cut off history is a really tricky issue. And I think, you know, it may feel good uh, in a case like this to say Texas is bad, they discriminated in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, and we're going to count that history against them. Okay. And Deepa and I are litigating a different case, a case um, in against Harvard University on racial preferences. Okay. So what if Harvard discriminated against Jewish applicants in the 1920s? Is everyone prepared to hold that against Harvard in 2016? We're going to have to have a uniform rule on these kinds of things. And it can't just be, well, we kind of think Texas has a bad history, so we're going to hold it against them. The second thing, and we haven't really touched on this yet, is I think the court really didn't agree with Texas that voter fraud and the integrity of the ballot was a legitimate reason for passing voter ID. If you think that's a made-up reason, if you think that's pretext, you're, I would say, in this court's mind, three-quarters of the way down the road to finding discriminatory intent. Uh, now, that's a tough issue because you're now second-guessing the legislative judgment. What standard are you imp uh, imposing on that? Uh, how are you reconciling your views to what the Supreme Court has said about voter ID uh, being legitimate, even in the absence of any evidence of in-person voter fraud? But I do think if you combine the history with, with that finding, that's where most of the work was done by the district court. I don't really, th I think, honestly, I wonder what Debo thinks, that the procedural stuff, the sort of legislative wrangling, legislative history stuff, I think that was more icing on the cake. I don't really think it's driving, driving this case. So, Debo, just to uh, cut to this central issue, if, if you were arguing before the court, to Justice Kennedy, how would you persuade him that this law was motivated by discriminatory intent? So my, my associate and, and perhaps some others have called the problem that the state is trying to solve here the phantom menace, um, the idea being that this is a lot of effort um, to exert and um, it risks disenfranchising a lot of voters in service of a problem that has not been demonstrated. And um, to, to look at the energy that's being exerted on this and to place it in context. And so Will, Will has made an important point about, uh, on this debate we're having, about what are the claims of history in um, contemporary legislative enactments. Um, it's a complicated question. But, but here, and in Tex Texas is perhaps the best place to have this conversation from a voting rights litigator's perspective. Because we're not just talking about history as in um, the very significant case of Smith v. Allwright in 1944, the white primaries case, which Thurgood Marshall called his most important case, um, where in the Democratic primary, uh, only, only white voters could participate. And essentially, there was exclusion that the court recognized under the Constitution was, was um, proscribed. So that case happened in 1944. It's a long time ago. So if we were talking about Smith v. Allwright, perhaps the conversation wouldn't be salient. But if I told you also 
that every every um, in every redistricting cycle and. Uh, redistricting cycles happen in 10-year intervals, and so that's important to think about when you think about voting enactments. Why? Because lots of voting action is happening during reapportionment and redistricting, where the lines are moving around um, and competition is being reset as we're looking at the population numbers. And in every decade since Texas was covered under the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act, statewide redistricting plans have been rejected um, under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act for having a retrogressive effect or purpose in Texas. So that's decade after decade after decade. And then I pointed to you earlier um, the LULAC case, right, which talks, and that's Kennedy saying that uh, the history of discrimination is very relevant in the context of a Section 2 ruling, finding that Texas was intentionally acting to cut off an opportunity for minority voter, voters, Latino voters, just as they were on the precipice of exercising that right. So now I would cast this enactment in that context, not the history of Smith v. Allwright standing alone, but in a pattern of enactments uh, and cases, a lot of case law. I've mentioned a few. There are many more, trust me, um, in Texas. That's an approach that Texas has taken to regulating who counts as part of we the people in an electoral sense. And I would try and convey that to the court um, and cite the court's own opinions. Uh, well, I'll ask a slightly different question to you. Even if you can parse the Arlington Heights test and say this doesn't quite pass, what other reason except to keep out minorities would Texas really have had? What's the case for why they're really, were they really concerned about voter fraud, and, and how would you convince the court that that was the actual reason? Yeah, so I would start by pointing back to the Indiana case, which I think sets the, the template for this. And Justice Stevens wrote the, the, the binding opinion there, knows ally of my position, certainly, uh, in the main. And he said in that case that even in the absence of any evidence of in-person voting fraud, states and localities had a strong interest in ensuring the public that there was integrity in the ballot box. Uh, that was the same conclusion drawn by Jimmy Carter and James Baker on their commission, that when people have, need to trust that the ballot is protected, that there's integrity in the process, and if you want anecdotal support, look at the reaction to the issues with hacking and other issues of this election. Now, uh, it's not true that states have to wait for a problem to materialize uh, or there to be a series of uh, you know, voter fraud uh, events to ensure that the public has confidence uh, in the system. And so I think that was what was motivating Texas and a lot of other states to do this. And I think it's just important to remember, when Texas did this, 95% of all Texans, including minorities, had the, voter, the, the ID necessary to vote under this existing law. We're talking about 4.5% of the state. Uh, and it was not an overwhelming number of, of, of minorities who lacked this. I, if you look at it from that perspective, this doesn't feel like a massive effort to alter the election outcomes in Texas. And I think, you know, that's a point I think people would make to the Supreme Court. So a response to that, Debo, if you leave out the long history, uh, there is this opinion by Justice Stevens in the Crawford case saying voter fraud is a legitimate concern and there's a national concern about voter fraud in light of hacking. So why couldn't Texas plausibly have passed these laws to prevent voter fraud? 
Uh, I guess two points. Um, we, let's, let's agree that hacking is, a, is an after-occurring phenomenon, um, meaning there's a, a ripe conversation going on now, but I don't think there's anybody that seriously contends that that was the um, concern of the Texas legislature at the time of the enactment. It's yet a new challenge um, to uh, voting uh, integrity, and so that's a, a serious issue that needs to be duly considered, but that was not what was motivating the legislature. I think part of what we would turn to is this selection of types of ID also, right? Like one of the, one of the, some of the cases in Texas that have been interesting, um, Will and I have argued about this case in other contexts and as we have walked the voting path on the other sides of the V. But there, there's a, a school in Texas called Prairie View A&M. Uh, Prairie View A&M is a historically black college. And there was a long history of having officials um, in the area of Prairie View, Waller County, Texas, um, try to deprive the students there from voting and threaten with prosecution students who were voting in elections. Um, the, the case that went to the Supreme Court about um, domicile, about where students can vote, the, the, the rule that gives you the right to vote here in New Haven, even though many of you hail from all across the country, is a case that arose out of Texas on the strength of these challenges to where, where students are, are trying to vote and exercise their franchise, and that a particular community um, was being uh, threatened with prosecution out of Waller County, and that there's a long history of continuing that pattern. It tells us something about this idea that there are state forms of identification that are being exempted from the law that has this concern. So it, all, it does make you scratch your head. Why in a democracy can people who carry guns have a right to vote, but students who want to vote can't participate? It's a very odd democratic rule, and it casts, some, uh, it casts a reasonable question about what is actually going on here. So I think you have to dig into the, the full set of issues. There's some on, on Will's side, there's some on my side, but I think at bottom, when you set it in the context of what Texas has done in the areas of voting, um, it's not that hard to connect the dots. Great. Well, um, well, let us turn to the question of discriminatory effect and tell us what the standard under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act is for identifying discriminatory effect and then tell us why you think that this law does not meet those standards. Sure. So this is a really complicated one, I think, for everybody. So the language of the statute is uh, a voting measure that has uh, results in the denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race violates the effects prong of Section 2. Nobody agrees on what the test is. The courts don't agree. I guarantee the people on this panel don't agree. Um, it is a very complicated issue. I think the core question, and I think it's an important one, is is there a difference between disparate impact and an effect that results in the denial or abridgment of the right to vote? I think that's really important, and I think that is one of the key things that the district court and, frankly, the panel missed in this case. So, and let me try to give you an example and sort of bring it to life a little bit. Let's say a state has 14 days of early voting, in-person voting, and no excuse absentee voting, and they change their statute by eliminating, eliminating one day of early voting. So now there's going to be 13 days of early voting. Let's say that minorities disproportionately use that one day of early voting. That legislative change has a disparate impact on minorities. But does it result in the denial or abridgment of the right to vote? 
I don't think any reasonable person could say yes when there are still 13 days of early voting, election day voting, and no excuse absentee voting, okay? Now, under this case, you could say that this law had a disparate impact on minorities. Of the 4.5% of Texans who lacked photo ID, more were minorities. That's true. But did it raise an unreasonable barrier to getting it? Was it too hard to get it? Or was it what the Supreme Court has called, quote unquote, the usual burdens of voting? There are all sorts of burdens of voting. There's a registration cutoff of 21 days in many states. Uh, you have to bring your voter registration card. Uh, there are limits on election hours. Elections are held on Tuesdays. Some people can't get to a poll on Tuesday. And so this is the issue that I think is likely to reach the Supreme Court, if any. Uh, and this is what's going to need to be resolved. And I think, I think the answer in this case probably turns on, on whether you agree or disagree with me on, on this point. Uh, great. Well, Debo, do you agree or disagree that the question is not does the law have a discriminatory effect on minorities, but does it impose an unreasonable burden on the right to vote? And tell us about the famous jingles test, which I uh, love trying to describe uh, in, in common law class. And what do you think the proper test is for judging discriminatory effect? And does this law meet it? So I, I think Will has raised an important question, but um, typically under, under Section 2, the results test is described as an effects test. It's, it's often described in that way. And, it was, and the um, Voting Rights Act was specifically amended to put in an impact standard, a standard that contemplates what is the impact of the uh, law or procedure that's being changed on the um, protected class of voters. And so um, while, there, while there may be some questions at the margin, some of the ways in which effects cases are decided also is to look at the surrounding factors. And in Will's own example, it may matter what, what day that is of the week. Why is, it, why is that a day that um, minority voters are, are tending to vote on that day? You know, are you taking away the weekend day that was used a lot um, by minority voters who might um, have to travel distances or not otherwise have time to get to the polls? There are, there are a bunch of factors that could come into an effects test also. And Jingles, essentially, that, was a re that happened in a sort of at-large challenge, a multi-member district challenge, um, and it established um, certain prerequisites for when you when you establish a um, uh, when, when you can establish a claim under Section Two. Um, they essentially because it was happening in a redistricting context, they they looked to certain things like whether or not the minority population is sufficiently numerous to draw a single member district. That was the first jingles consideration. There were two others um, which read together are essentially get at the concept of racially polarized voting. Is voting racially polarized? The first, uh, the second of the three would be is the um, population voting cohesively? Are they voting together? And then the third is essentially is there racially polarized voting so that the, um, the, the white majority votes to, uh, together to defeat um, the preferred candidates of, of minority voters. And this um, was a, a test and is a test that's used very often, particularly in those redistricting contexts, to weigh um, whether or not an enactment um, has the effect of discriminating against minority voters in, in that Section 2 statutory context. 
Um, Will, is the jingles test relevant, or do you prefer the gloss of the Fifth Circuit, which imposed a two-part test under Section 2? First, the challenge standard has to impose a discriminatory burden on members of a protected class so they have less opportunity to participate in the political process and elect representatives of their choice. That's the language from Section 2 itself. And then second, that burden has to be caused or linked to social and historical conditions that have or currently produced discrimination against members of the protected class. Yeah, so I don't have a huge issue with the two-part test if it's done correctly. I think I think the devil's in the details on it. I, I don't think the jingles factors are really that helpful in a ballot access case. I think they were designed for redistricting, uh, you know, given the compactness and contiguity issues that it, it stemmed from. Uh, I'm not a big fan of ten-part non-dispositive multi-factor tests. <laughs> they they see keeps lawyers in business. Keeps lawyers in business, and 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 just let judges do what they want to do. I mean, that's the whole point of a ten-factor multi-part test. Um, so, if it does have a role to play here, I think it would have a role to play in the part that we really haven't talked about, which is the end of the sentence in section two, on account of race. I think so. Example: If voter ID imposes a disproportionate burden on people uh, who are poor. Then the question becomes, okay, but does that interact with social and economic conditions such that it really has an effect on account of race? I think those factors, you know, the history that are involved in there, they can play some role there. But I think all of the action in this case is really before that. And just to return to my example, I, you know, I think Debo was saying that basically it is a disparate impact statute. And I just don't think that can be right. Um, for the example I gave, you said, he, he says, um, well, why did they get rid of that one day? Did minorities like to use it? Well, if they did it for intentionally discriminatory reasons, that's a whole separate category. That's, that's fine. We can have that conversation, and, and it could be struck down on those grounds. But assuming there's no evidence of intentional discrimination, uh, it shouldn't matter for an effects test whether it was popular, unless the rule of Section 2 is we have to make the, the, the rules as convenient as possible for minorities. Because there's no way anybody could argue that with 13 days of early voting and all the other ways you can vote, that it actually results in the denial. So if that's the thing, then what we're really saying is we're enacting Section 5's retrogression standard as a proxy for Section 2's effects test, and that would get the Supreme Court's attention pretty quickly. So, Debo, how, you're, once again, you're arguing to Justice Kennedy. I hear you saying there's a difference between the discriminatory effects test and the unreasonable burden test. Which, uh, what would you argue to him, and, and how do you think he's likely to rule on this question? So, I, I guess one of the things I would come back to is the, the lower court's finding that 500,000 uh, voters in, in Texas could be affected by this. Um, in these cases, sometimes when you speak about percentages, they can take your eye off impact and the impact in real numbers of eligible voters. And those folks have a um, right and an opportunity to participate in the process. I, I, the other point that I would take here is that this, while we're having a, a very civilized debate here, um, in the uh, serene environs of, uh, of the Yale Law School. Um, this is about people's opportunity to participate in the political process, and it's a, a voting statute that is designed to constrict. I mean, uh, the, uh, look, 
even if you don't think it's designed to constrict, because Will's about to say I'm moving into the intent analysis again, it has the impact of constricting. By objective measures, it was more rigorous than many other states that had passed these types of statutes. And so you have to view it through, through the lens of what it's likely to do. And in a big state, a small percentage can still be a lot of voters. And I, for one, am concerned about having their path to the ballot box constrained. And I am concerned about it from a democracy perspective, whether those are people who actually have voted before or not. I want them to have the right to vote so if tomorrow they decide that they're going to become active, they can. And what these laws do is they try and um, narrow the path to voting by putting sufficient impediments in the way of real people that have difficult lives with many demands on their time such that the, the marginal um, uh, effect of trying to forego something else, of feeding the kids, of picking up the kids, of bringing somebody to grandma's house, the burden is going to be uh, such that they're just going to forego their right. And, and through a democracy lens, I'm concerned about that, and I would invite Justice Kennedy to try and see the impact on real people. Um, the democracy takes its lifeblood from people participating, and barriers in the way um, tend to undermine that. Thanks so much for that. Well, Will, in the course of responding to Devo's claim that 500,000 affected voters is a lot, I'm going to put on the table two great questions from our wonderful uh, Yale Law School audience. Uh, the first is, why should it matter that only 4.5% of Texans' right to vote is being threatened when they're among the most politically vulnerable? And the second related is, can you address the potentially discriminatory effect and intent on language minorities, including the rapidly growing Latino population. Yeah, so I'll take all three. Uh, in terms of arguing to Justice Kennedy about the effect side of this case, I think I would make just two basic points. One, he rejected almost all of those same arguments in Crawford. Uh, those arguments aren't specific to Texas in terms of how voter ID laws constrict the ability of people to vote and who they impact. Second, if you accept that, I don't think we can run elections in this country. Every argument I've just made, so federal law, federal statute says elections shall be the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. Every argument I've just made could be made against holding elections on Tuesdays. They make it harder for people to vote. Why aren't they on Saturdays? Clearly, for, for the working class people in this country, Saturdays would be better. I actually think they'd be better too. That's not the question. The question is that, what, was section two designed to make voting on Tuesdays illegal in this country? I suspect not. Um, New York has no early voting. No one has sued New York under Section 2. Uh, it was argued in this case and accepted by the district court that the in voting by mail option was not an acceptable substitute for voting at the polls. Oregon votes in, by mail entirely. There is no in-person voting in Oregon. It, does Oregon system violate Section 2? Or is it really a retrogression standard? You don't have to have these things, but once you do, you can't get rid of them if they have a negative effect on minorities. That's the Section 5 test, right? That's a very different statute, which raises all sorts of concerns. And I might also remind Justice Kennedy that he has uh, pointedly on three occasions said he is not passing on the constitutionality of Section 2. He has reserved the question. And I think this is exactly the kind of case that would force him to decide whether he thinks a statute that is that race conscious could survive constitutional review. Now we had questions about, really quickly, 
of course it matters that 4.5%, 500,000 people. I, I didn't mean to suggest that if those people have been intentionally discriminated against, if, if the burdens here have been raised too high, such that it's an unreasonable barrier, and I think that's a fact question. I'm not, at least in this discussion, taking a position on, on that, uh, that it shouldn't matter to them. What I'm suggesting, though, is that if you think Texas was engaging in intentional discrimination, I think you have to take a step back and think about whether they were competently doing so. Uh, and 95% uh, of Texans having the ID that you're trying to uh, make people have is at least a factor in the analysis. What was the last one? Uh, the effect on uh, Latino. Uh, I think, I think um, among minorities who are impacted by voter ID, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, I think it was, geared, it was more language minorities and less African Americans among the, that, that group. So I do think it affected them more. That, that wouldn't be a surprise in Texas, given the demographics of Texas. And language minority is a prohibited basis. If there's discrimination on that basis, it's as invalid as any other, I think. But that just assumes away the hard question here, which is, is there that discrimination? Great. Uh, Debo, uh, Will just raised a dramatic possibility. Might Justice Kennedy rule here that Section 2 itself uh, violates the Constitution? Um, how do you think, given his vote in the Crawford voter ID case, he is likely to rule in this case? Uh, uh, let me ask you those two questions. Sure. So um, an important point in distinction about Crawford is that Crawford was a facial challenge to the photo ID um, measure in Indiana. And the reason that matters is because that's, it's, pr it's prior to implementation and it's prior to the time when you get to develop a record about impacts that gives you a more granular understanding. It's also important to consider these laws. Will pointed to some other states. Um, and it's important, and this is something you get also in an applied challenge, to think about what are the circumstances in a particular state, what are the demographics in a particular state, what, what is the geography of a particular state, how distant, you know, Texas, the great state of Texas is a pretty big state. Um, when we were, when I was litigating the Northwest uh, Austin case, I spent some time there. I spent some time there in other cases, and you have to drive large distances to get to polls. Um, you you can simply um, remove a particular polling place from a community and make it much harder for a concentrated minority community to participate in an election because they're going to have to travel too far to get to the polls. And again, they are, they're living with all of the impediments that I discussed. So um, Crawford only goes so far. Um, Crawford and Indiana are not Texas and VZ, and I think there are distinctions there. Another important point, one of the judges underneath in Crawford, I think, was Posner, and Posner, um, in the fullness of time, came to look at the propagation of these photo ID measures, and he came to understand, essentially, that uh, his vote was wrong in, in Crawford underneath, and that, that these laws are a threat to democracy. And so I think Justice Kennedy would certainly consider his earlier opinion, but he would also consider the particular context that we're in. And that brings me to the other question you had about the constitutionality of Section 2. There's something very important for uh, your listeners and, and these students to keep in mind, which is one of the principal reasons uh, that folks argued that Section 5, the preclearance provision, was no longer needed is because there was another remedy, sec the Section 2 remedy, which would provide opportunities to ferret out and attack voting discrimination where it occurs. It, it's interesting to see how we move from one thing to the next as we uh, try to unwind voting protections. And the thing that was holding up the Section 5 
argument. Uh, don't worry. Uh, we don't need preclearance. We still have Section 2. You can run into court, use the result standard, and get a preliminary injunction. I said at the beginning of my talk that when this measure was first put in place, it was quickly objected to right away. Um, we're now four years into litigation in this case. There have been multiple elections, and this photo ID measure has affected people's ability to participate in elections. That's the difference between a world where you had the preclearance provision that could block a retrogressive measure before it has impact, and having voters live under the yoke of a discriminatory measure and have to disturb it after it has had impact. And so these are the points that I would put to Justice Kennedy, and I would remind the court that it would be extraordinary to, for the court to take the step of undermining one of the legs and theories of its uh, Section 5 rationale, that there are other protections in place and that the um, protections of preclearance are no longer required. So um, th that day may come where that question gets queued up, but um, I'll, I'll be happy to, to meet Will back, uh, back, back in D.C. for that one. Um, great. Well, just so uh, the audience and listeners understand these two important provisions, Section 5 of the uh, Voting Rights Act, remember, struck down in Shelby County, required states that were covered jurisdictions identified originally in the 1960s to get approval from the Justice Department before they changed their voting procedures. That was struck down in Shelby County is no longer necessary. But uh, Debo just said that the court relied on the availability under Section 2 of the 14th Amendment to of the Voting Rights Act to challenge the discriminatory effect of a particular provision. Uh, Will a bunch of states have passed voter ID laws? In 2016, the New York Times reported that voters in seven states are required to show voter IDs. Several have been challenged in court. Can you give us a sense of how these laws have fared? Uh, how many have been struck down and how many have been upheld? And, and what does that tell us about what the Supreme Court might do? Yeah, I certainly don't have a full catalog in my mind, but the notable ones. Uh, and they've all gone down differently. Uh, Wisconsin was uh, mostly upheld, and uh, Indiana's was obviously upheld. Uh, North Carolina's was struck down, but on intent grounds, so it doesn't tell you a lot about the effects test. I think those are the, the major players beyond Texas so far in, in the litigation front. I think a lot of people thought the Wisconsin case was probably one that was destined for the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm not sure whether that's still true or not. Um, I think this case, though, is, it looks like the leader uh, now in terms of what the court might do. And if I could just quickly return to the, the Section 2 issue, because I think this is important for one to understand. I do think the goalposts are being moved a little bit here on that issue. I just don't think they're being moved by me. Um, we did say in Shelby County that Section 2 would, would, would be available. The response was, no, but retrogression is a much more rigorous standard than the results prong, and so we don't get the same level of relief. And now what we're seeing is the conversion of the Section 2 effects test into the retrogression standard. And I think that, I'm not suggesting that Justice Kennedy is likely to strike down the effects test of Section 2 under what I think is a more appropriate articulation of it. I'm suggesting that if it really is converted into retrogression, if it really is pure disparate impact, then I think it's more, it's, it's more on the table about whether it can be reconciled under Bernie as appropriate legislation to enforce the 14th or 15th Amendments. Great. Uh, one question for each of you uh, from the audience, and then we'll have closing arguments. Debo, what limitation on voting would not have a discriminatory impact, and don't we risk a one-way ratchet where states can only make voting more widely available? 
Well, I guess it's it's hard to think about what the full um, spate of remedies and measures would be, but every day uh, or every year, um, states pass new measures and adjust their voting procedures. There's a lot of stuff going on in the election administration area. Um, states have moved back and forth between electronic voting mechanisms. Some states are ex experimenting with uh, with mail-in voting, and so I think it's not hard to imagine um, various types of measures that uh, would, would pass muster, and I don't think that every voting measure is challenged. Um, that's why you have to look um, closely at the intent and the effect um, of a particular measure. Um, we're not trying to argue too much and say that no innovation or no change is possible. Uh, that's not the argument that anybody is making. The argument is that in certain contexts, measures have a discriminatory impact or intent, and under our laws and in the history of the United States in the area of voting, those measures should be rooted out with available legal tools. Um, that's, that's the argument. Was there a second part to that question? Uh, no, that was, uh, okay. that's great. And uh, Will, uh, a, a two-part final question for you. How can you argue that this voter ID law is to prevent voter fraud when there's not been any evidence of voter fraud? And how does this case magnify or demonstrate the weaknesses of the Voting Rights Act? Uh, what was the last part again? How, do, how does the case magnify or demonstrate the weaknesses of the Voting Rights Act? Sure. On the first part, again, I think there's a really intense debate about whether there has been in-person voter fraud, how much of it is detectable. I really don't want to get wrapped up in that because I think it's unnecessary to at least defend my position and only leads to a point of sort of nobody agreeing on anything. My point would be even if there is no current in-person voting fraud, the Supreme Court has made clear, and I think they were right to do so, that states have the right to demonstrate to the public that there's integrity of the process. And again, Jimmy Carter and James Baker advocated for photo ID for just this reason. Uh, it's used in other countries. It's used in, in all sorts of states. Uh, as long as it wasn't done for a discriminatory purpose, and as long as it doesn't raise a barrier so high that it results in the denial or abridgment of voting for some minority group, I think it's a perfectly valid, sensible thing for a state to do. Um, how does this case demonstrate the strength or weaknesses of the Voter Rights Act? I guess it depends on what you mean by weaknesses. I think uh, the other side would say uh, we needed Section 5. Section 2 is a weak remedy if it can't stop this. I think we've sort of gone back and forth on that. I won't repeat those grounds. Um, I would suggest alternatively that if, if the effects test uh, is operated in the way the district court and the court of appeals did here, that uh, it has constitutional weaknesses, because Congress doesn't have unlimited authority to enact every voting right it wants. The qualifications of voters under our Constitution is given to the states. Who may vote, is, when they vote, is up to the, up, in federal elections at least, is up to Congress, but who may vote is up to the states, and Congress can't rewrite the Constitution uh, through Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and so I think that is a real vulnerability, if not a weakness. Wonderful. Well, it is time, ladies and gentlemen, for closing arguments in this civil, substantive, and extremely important debate. Uh, Debo, first uh, to you. Uh, why do you believe that Texas's voter ID law violates the Constitution and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? The, the record matters. Context matters. Uh, the history of voting discrimination in Texas matters. And it's not history. It's not ancient history. It's an unbroken pattern 
of efforts to make it harder for minority voters to participate in elections, a fact that was observed as recently as 2006 in Justice Kennedy's opinion where he, sa he found that the Texas legislature was enacting measures that bore the mark of intentional discrimination. This is the latest iteration of efforts to narrow the path to the ballot box where you have a rising uh, minority population that is becoming politically activated. That was the pattern that was observed in the LULAC case out of Texas. It's a pattern that has been known to voting rights litigators, the Supreme Court, and many lower courts in all of the decades since the 1960s. And as I pointed out earlier, since 1944, when Thurgood won the white primary case, Smith v. Allwright out of Texas. Um, there was a voting rights activist in Mississippi who, who died defending the, um, the right to vote. He used to register people to vote in his convenience store um, during the civil rights era. His name was Vernon Damer. Uh, the Klan approached his house and set it afire, on fire, and he went to grab his gun and return fire so that his family could escape, but he later died in the hospital of his burns. Vernon Damer is said to um, have made the point before he died, if you don't vote, you don't count. And I think what people are taking very close scrutiny of is in our polity, what are the measures that legislatures are taking to essentially establish that point, that if you don't vote, you don't count. And what you have is a contested democracy that we will continue to fight about and that lives only in the enforcement of the Constitution and the specific amendments added to our Constitution for the express purpose of rooting out discrimination against racial minorities. Thank you so much for that. Will, the last word to you. Why do you believe that the Texas voter ID law does not violate the Constitution and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act? Yes, thank you for having me. So I would start by, again, taking a step back and saying we have to be very careful when we accuse anyone, our neighbors, our friends, people we live with, of being uh, motivated by racial animus or discrimination. Uh, if you level that charge uh, unjustly, we lose the ability to talk to each other. We lose the ability to live with each other. Um, what we have here is a policy dispute. Some people like voter ID. They like that it fosters the integrity of the ballot. Uh, John Stevens was one of them, okay? Some people don't like it. And what we have here is using the Constitution, I believe, as a tool to take a very fair, very genuine policy dispute and put it in the context of race unfairly. Uh, we have a neutral law here. We have a law that where there's no direct evidence of discrimination, we, and we are taking bits and pieces uh, of various things that happened in the ordinary course of passing laws and putting them together and saying, you were motivated by race. The evidence just isn't there. Uh, there's no evidence that Texas was motivated by it. There's no evidence that this is having a discriminatory effect on people's ability to cast ballots. Uh, as was mentioned, there have been three elections with this law in place. There's no evidence of decreased turnout among any cohort of voters. Uh, there's no um, evidence even that the original plaintiffs are being denied the ability to vote here. Uh, the Department of Justice did a, a study of the whole state of Texas. They went all over the state to look for people who had been disenfranchised. They came up essentially empty. Uh, and here we are, six years later, in courts, yelling about who 
uh, was motivated by race and who was not. Uh, we're I not think, yelling. <laughs> we're not yelling. Uh, people are yelling. Um, uh, and I just think that if we push the Voting Rights Act this far to say that anything that has a disparate impact on minority voters uh, is a violation of federal law on racial grounds, uh, we're going to grind to a halt. And I think everyone should be really careful before we do that. And I just don't think the evidence is here to support it. Thank you so much, Will Conway and Deba Alagibale, for a civil, thoughtful, engaged debate. Far from yelling, you have provided a model for civil dialogue about the Constitution that has educated and informed our listeners. We the People listeners, if you like this meaningful debate at Yale Law School, invite We the People to your law schools. We've been to Berkeley, Georgetown, Columbia, and would love to come on the road and to spread constitutional light and provide this wonderful model of bringing together debaters from the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society to converge around this beautiful document that unites us, the U.S. Constitution. Will, Debo, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, now that we're offline, let's take a constitutional vote, which we love to do. And I want you to vote based not on what you think the right policy answer is, but whether you were persuaded by Debo or Will that the Texas ID law violates the Constitution or Section 2. Okay, so separate your political and your constitutional views. Who was persuaded by Debo that the law does violate the Constitution and or Section 2? And who was persuaded by Will that it does not? And who changed his or her mind after hearing the debate? Wonderful. Okay. Thank you so much. I meant it. Uh, YLS friends, you are uh, keepers of the flame of the Constitution. Everything you do here is involved with learning about it. And that's what we're trying to do at the Constitution Center, to bring this learning to learners of all ages from 8 to 80. So if you'd like to become involved in this great project, please let me know. And once again, please join me in thanking our great debaters. Today's show was engineered by David Stotts and produced by Ogana Etze and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash Constitution Weekly. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. Also, please, We the People listeners, be sure to rate We the People on iTunes and other platforms. It helps others learn about what we do. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the engagement, passion for lifelong learning, dedication, and insistence on cultivating your faculties of reason and reasoning together that all of you demonstrate every week when you tune in and learn with me about the best arguments on all sides of the fundamental constitutional issues that face our country. Please join the National Constitution Center to signal your engagement and to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.